here with Naomi Klein, author of On Fire, The Burning Case of a Green New Deal. Thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. I am excited to talk about your book. Just first, tell us why, what made you want to write this? Well, I think there's a lot of misinformation about what a Green New Deal means. Uh-huh. Um, it basically, they, they lie about it all day long <laughs> yes, on Fox. That's the process, right? Yeah, yes. it's, it's one of Trump's new talking points, new punching bags. Um, and the truth is that in a lot of the kind of liberal media, people are getting a little afraid of it and uh-huh. aren't really defending it. Um, and so this, I, I believe as somebody who has been covering the climate crisis for 15 years, ever since Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, um, that this really is our best and last chance to uh, avert truly catastrophic climate change. That this is a plan to listen to what scientists are telling us um, to lower emissions in line with what we actually need to do. So not sort of tinkering around the edges, but to do it in a way that makes it much more exciting for the public. So linking it with with popular policies like Medicare for all, universal child care. Uh-huh. So it isn't all about sacrifice, right? Because I think a lot of people are afraid of climate action because for years they've been told it's gonna destroy the economy. And the thing about a Green New Deal is it's actually a plan for a better and fairer economy. And you, and I wanna make sure that I get it right. You've said the way we talk about the threat of climate change is too siloed from the other crises that we face. So how do we change that? Um, well. You know, one of the things I'm talking about in the book is that you know we are living in the time of the climate fires, right? Uh-huh. That's one of the fires I'm talking about. But we are also living in a time of these right-wing political fires, and I don't think it's a coincidence that as the climate crisis ceases to be a sort of off in the distant, far off threat that you worry about, you know, for grandchildren or something like that, but actually something that people are living in the here and now. We're here in Los Angeles. I mean, this like this this title is not metaphorical, right? I mean, blackouts in Southern California to prevent another wildfire like we saw a year ago in California, in, in, in Paradise, California, that destroyed that entire community. Um, so. I think people understand whether they claim to deny climate change or not uh-huh. that we are, our house is in crisis, our collective house is in crisis. We're also dealing with the legacy of, of 40 years of economic policies that have made people's lives more precarious. And so people like Trump in the United States, but also Bolsonaro in Brazil, also people like Salvini in Italy, these sort of far right figures are really, really good at, at preying on those feelings of insecurity economic and ecological and pitting country pitting people groups in, in countries against each other um, and also people at the border obviously um, and all of this distracts attention from the real business at hand which is looting the last remaining wildernesses on the planet for profit um, so we can't think of this as a siloed crisis because it's interconnected it's connected with war it's mm-hmm. connected with migration you know, climate change makes everything worse. If you look at what happened in Puerto Rico after Maria, and that's one of the things I write about in the book, um, you know, we there we, we saw an, a healthcare crisis, the whole healthcare system collapsed. That's why thousands of people died. Right. Um, there was also a spike in domestic violence and femicide after after Hurricane Maria, because when societies are stressed, whatever the inequalities and vulnerabilities are before the disaster get worse. So the idea that we could just be talking about carbon and not talking about economic justice, not talking about racial justice and gender justice, just isn't, it isn't connected to the way climate change impacts real people's lives. 
I love that and I think that you did a good job of, I think there's this idea that and that's something that people can deny, like the future. That's mm. when you get the, the crazies who just don't wanna listen to scientists, don't yeah. wanna believe the truth. It's, oh, they don't believe that we only have this many years to right. fix it. They don't believe that the earth is literally burning. They don't believe that, but I think you do a good job at kind of pointing out, well, before we even get there, what about now? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, that's, I, I really liked that. Um, the truth is that I, I actually think we are seeing a real shift on the right where climate change denial, like outright climate change denial is really receding. Uh-huh. And we're actually beginning to see the rise of ecofascism, of people um, who are openly saying, okay, it's real, so we need to fortress our borders. So we need to, uh, you know, we can't allow the rest of the world to have the same standard of living as Americans. The El Paso shooter. He went into a Walmart that he knew was frequented by Mexicans. He identified as an eco-fascist and he said Americans, in his manifesto, he said Americans aren't gonna change their way of life. So he went into a Walmart and killed Mexicans because he didn't want them to have the American way of life. And so I actually think that if we don't have an intersectional approach to the climate crisis that links the dots between rising white supremacy and, and hate crimes and this, this xenophobic wave sweeping the, the globe, we're actually gonna be nostalgic about the days of climate change denial because it's actually a lot scarier when some of these folks stop denying climate change and then use the climate crisis as their argument for a much more brutal world. That's such a good point. I am, and now I'm like, oh, I'm like, oh, you're right. <laughs> I'm curious, what did you think of CNN's climate town hall? Yeah. I guess, right? <laughs> well, I mean, a pretty stark contrast to the last debate where, you know, it barely came up, right? right. Um, which At is, all, right? Yeah, I mean, I yeah. think Bernie Sanders talked about right. it, um, but the moderators didn't ask a direct question about it. And, you know, first, first, I think it, it's really to Bernie's credit that he didn't wait for the question because the thing about a Green New Deal, and a lot of candidates are claiming that they support a Green New Deal because this is really important to young voters and this is where a lot of the energy is. And so, you know, you know, at least five of the of, of the top can, of the top contenders claim they support a Green New Deal, but the Green New Deal is modeled after FDR's original New Deal, which is. So it isn't a narrow climate policy. It is the plan for the next economy that that lowers emissions in line with science, but really changes everything. It's it's a a bundle of policies. So if you're not talking about it in every stump speech, if you if if you aren't talking about it when you're asked about your economic plans, your jobs plans, your foreign policy, then you don't really believe in a Green New Deal. Right. Because you don't need to wait to be asked about it. CNN's you know seven hour hour marathon was that was pretty historic that that seven hour climate debate and it was the result of I think the pressure from groups like Sunrise who've been demanding uh, that the DNC hold a climate debate and of course they they were thwarted on that but I think it was significant that CNN stepped in and had um, and had that platform. I I'm curious like what do we do about people who are kind of like. Um, so overwhelmed that mm-hmm. they just think that there's yeah. nothing we can do. No one is ever, we're never gonna get everybody on board. Right. What, what do we say to those people? Well, you know, I think the beauty of a Green New Deal is that it, you know, I think what has defeated us for so long is that there has been this really, really successful talking point mm-hmm. that you have to choose between caring about 
the economy, caring about putting food on the table, caring about jobs, these bread and butter issues that everybody cares about, and caring about climate change. And climate change was sort of seen as this luxury issue. And there was a reason for that. And that is that a lot of the policies that were put forward over the past decade and a half did actually make life more expensive for regular working people. Um, it meant you know higher prices for electricity, higher higher you know prices for gasoline in places that that imposed that kind of tax, like in France. And so climate action has gotten a bad name, and it's just associated with sacrifice because the way in which we've approached it hasn't been fair. We haven't asked polluters to pay to pay. Right now, Exxon is on trial because. We now know that they knew decades ago that their business was fueling the destabilization of our planet and they suppressed that research just like the tobacco companies did. So why isn't Exxon paying for this? Why isn't Shell paying for this? Why is it regular working people who've had to foot the bill? So I think if we have a fairer framework for how we're gonna deal with this, then I think we're gonna get a lot more people on board. If it is, as Bernie Sanders talks about, a plan to create five million jobs, if it is connected with policies that are gonna make life easier for people like Medicare for all. Um, and we can get that message out and connect the dots. I actually think that this becomes a lot more popular really quickly. I wanna talk about you just for a second mm-hmm. because I think you are, I find you fascinating. And I wonder what made you, like what do you think made you so passionate about climate activism outside of, I guess, the obvious that it matters what mm. happens to our <laughs> planet, you know? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, like I, you know, I've been writing books for 20 years. My first book came out 20 years ago. It was not about the environment. Uh-huh. It was, you know, it, it was about corporate power. It was called No Logo. The book after that that I wrote was called The Shock Doctrine. Once again, it's a, a, a political history of how we ended up with this brutal economic system. You know, I was one of these people, and I think there are a lot of us. You know, who I told myself. Look, I'm I'm focused on things that are more important. Climate change is far off. Uh-huh. It's something that the green groups are taking care of. They seem to have a lot of money, and I just thought like the issues that I'm focused on, economic justice, human rights, like this is life or death stuff in the here and now, and I am not focused on climate change. And my turning point was I was in New Orleans. Um, The city was still partially underwater. I was not there because I cared about climate change. I was there because I was working on the shock doctrine and it was this case study of what I call disaster capitalism, Uh right? Like the city, as I said, was still underwater and you know, the vultures were circling with plans to privatize New Orleans school system, bulldoze the public housing and replace it with with, um, condominiums and townhouses. Uh, meanwhile, Blackwater, Halliburton, Bechtel, the whole Baghdad gang that I had covered in Iraq were all there as well with this new business model of we're gonna profit from climate change as, as this never ending disaster. And so that was when I realized, first of all, you can't, you can't pry climate you, apart from the broader economic system that is making it so much worse, right? In New Orleans- And a lot of people don't get that. No, but think about what happened in New Orleans. Those levees broke because of this ideology that has starved our public sphere now for decades. There were warning after warning, fix the levees, fix the levees, but like so much infrastructure in this country, especially the infrastructure that is supposed to serve or protect African American communities, it was neglected and allowed to crumble. And so then heavy weather intersects with that weak and neglected infrastructure and bang, you have you know one of the worst disasters in American history. So. It is all connected, and I think it's only people who aren't actually out there 
in the field covering this or living it who can tell themselves that it's possible to pry these issues apart, mm -hmm. right? Like how, if you were in Puerto Rico after Maria and looking at why people were dying, you would never ask yourself why is healthcare in a Green New Deal, right? Because it, people in, in Puerto Rico didn't die from falling debris. Some, a few did, but thousands died because of the result of decades of economic austerity that starved the electricity grid and the healthcare system. And that was what was truly lethal. Naomi Klein, author of uh, On Fire, The Burning Case of a Green New Deal. Thank you so much for being Thank here with you. us. Thank you, it's a pleasure to speak with you. All right, we will be right back uh, with another great guest, stay with us. We are joined now by Scott Heckinger, Senior Staff Attorney and Director of Policy at Brooklyn Defender Services. Scott, thank hey, you for being here. So glad to be here, we I, do have a lot to talk about. We Let's have get a lot going. to talk about and I'm really <laughs> excited to talk to you. I've wanted to talk to you for a really long time outside of Twitter. So uh, just for our viewers, can you tell us a little bit about what you do, what your day to day looks like? I think that it is not only fascinating and interesting, but so important I think uh, our viewers would like to, to know. I work for Brooklyn Defender Services, I'm a public defender. We represent half, almost half of everyone arrested in Brooklyn. So depending on the mood of the NYPD, that's somewhere in the range of 30 to 40,000 people every year. We also have an immigration practice, we also have family defense practice. But what do I do every day? I represent people who cannot afford to afford an attorney. There's a Sixth Amendment right to counsel in criminal proceedings where you're facing jail time and I enforce that constitutional right. So the mornings I'm in court every day uh, while I'm waiting often for my case to be called. I'm either writing motions or um, drawing attention to uh, the everyday injustices that I see on, on Twitter and, and, and other modes of communication. And then when I get back from court in the afternoons, I'm writing my motions, I'm negotiating on the phone, but I'm also leading uh, policy efforts for the organization. So trying to raise up the experiences and the perspective and what we witness as frontline practitioners every day and the voices of our clients and the people who we serve uh, to drive systemic change outside of court in a way that other people wouldn't be able to do. And so touching on two of those kind of points that you just made, like what you see every day and the aspect of that you see something that so many, no one else really would be able to see, would be able to explain, they don't have that perspective. And when we were kind of setting up this interview and talking, you said something to me that it did stick with me. You said, you mentioned that public defenders are overlooked as experts. And I thought that I, I totally believe you and it makes no sense. Can you break down how, why we fail at that? Well, first of all, I do believe, thank you for pointing it out, that we're uniquely positioned as public defenders, as frontline practitioners, whether you're practicing in criminal court, family court, immigration court, uh, to help lead the fight to end mass punishment. We're in court every day. We see how these laws, practices uh, intersect in, to drive mass punishment, to hurt the people who we serve in their communities, mostly black, brown, and immigrant communities. Um, we also have unique relationships with the people who we serve. And and so why why have we not been utilized? Why have we not been come to more often, as you ask? And there's two things. I mean, just historically, we're just not trusted. We're not trusted by the people who we serve in their communities. We're seen as cogs in the wheel uh, for better, or not for better, for worse, but uh, with some uh, legitimacy and, you know, based on history. But that's changing. But also lawmakers view us as Folks who just want to get people out of jail, we don't have any good ideas. But what we really have are ideas that can make the system fairer, more cost efficient, 
and actually make the public safer safer at the same time. And so we're seeing changes right now as public defenders, as frontline practitioners are getting more savvy on social media, are building really important, as we are Brooklyn Defender Services around the country, coalitions and collaborations and partnerships with grassroots organizations and leaders. And the people who we serve, not just to use their stories to highlight injustices, but to really partner with them and give them and provide them with agency as partners in this advocacy effort, we're starting to see changes. We saw that this past year in New York with major wins with public defender involved campaigns on ending cash bail for the majority of crimes in New York and uh, changing the law finally bringing our discovery laws in line with the rest of the country up until well up until January 2020 the prosecutors are entitled by law in New York to withhold most evidence most information until after not just the day of trial after the first juror is sworn. And so those were major changes that happened because lawmakers started to listen to us. And not just to us, listen to us, the communities that we serve and directly impacted people. Uh, let's talk about a mandatory minimum sentencing because you wrote a piece in the New York Times and uh, it starts off saying they drastically limit accountability for those with the power to take away a person's liberty. Break that down for our viewers. So just an example of, of something that public defenders, me included, see every day that's not obvious to the outside. So first of all, what are mandatory minimums? Mandatory minimums are laws that make it illegal for judges to sentence something post conviction mm -hmm. to anything less than a certain period of time in prison. Um, it transfers a lot of or all discretion to the prosecutors and prosecutors use the threat of these mandatory minimums where the judge could be your mom, your best friend, your son, your uh, anyone that loves you uh, and they wouldn't be able to sentence you to anything less. And because of that, what they'll do, what prosecutors will do is they'll say, oh, okay, the mandatory minimum is three and a half years, we'll offer you two before trial or we'll offer you probation before trial. And most people take the offer, whether they're guilty or innocent, whether they've been stopped and frisked unconstitutionally or not. And that's a major reason why 95% of convictions come from guilty pleas, not trial. But there's more than the loss of trial, and this is what the point I was bringing up. Uh, these guilty pleas and the coercion that comes with these guilty pleas happens before pretrial hearings where people would be able to challenge their unconstitutional searches and seizures, mm -hmm. violations of their rights by police. And so in addition to getting rid of the jury trial, mandatory minimums also contribute to not just insulating police violence and police misconduct, but perpetuating because it sends the message. It's not just the individual cases. Officers know that when they make an arrest, they're likely never to have to take the stand and face cross-examination by a public defender. Uh, with misdemeanors, more than half the cases resolve on the same day of arraignments with the police before they even start their next shift. That bad stop and frisk is closed up. They're never going to be questioned. And the guilty plea also closes off any possibility of a federal civil, civil rights lawsuit. So the point that I made is, look, Obviously, police departments' failure to hold their own officers accountable. Daniel Pantaleo, the murderer of Eric Garner, is a perfect example. It took five years in international pressure and the ruling of a NYPD judge to finally get the NYPD to fire him. They rightfully take a lot of the blame for this crisis of impunity in police officers, but we can't ignore mandatory minimums as a part of this. So kind of staying on the topic of sentencing, I want to talk about some high profile cases because everyone I think is still talking about Amber Geiger in Dallas, Texas. And she was just sentenced to 10 years in prison for killing Botham Jean. A lot of people were angry, right? And felt like she deserved a much harsher punishment, a much longer sentencing. Someone died, right? 
And but I saw a lot of criminal justice activists kind of taking a different stance and it opened my mind because I think initially I was one of those people you're so frustrated and I didn't think she was gonna be found guilty even and then it's like 10 years is that enough? But I guess when I think about justice and maybe where we should be, maybe I should be thinking and we all should be thinking about those things differently. Where do you stand on that? I think we should be thinking about them differently. But let me first point out that outrage is totally normal. It's okay, we should be outraged. Mm -hmm. I was outraged and I have to say that, that, you know, the Giuliani's and the Trump administration is these these kind of high profile cases of leniency. They do test public the public defender medal, and my kind of not wanting to see people go to jail. It just it it is it does test me. But here's the thing that I know as a public defender and as someone who's also a student of history and particularly criminal justice history, any single time that we call as a society for greater harshness, Mm -hmm. that greater harshness has the largest impact on the majority of the people who are coming into the system. And who's the majority of the people being brought into the system? That's black and Latinx communities only living in certain neighborhoods. And so ordinarily, it's pro-carceral forces like police and prosecutors that are using kind of high-profile cases and really weaponizing tragedy to further mass uh, incarceration. This was the story of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, calling for harshness. That's when mandatory minimums came into effect. Mm-hmm. Pretrial detention expanded. The criminalization of everything happened. But there's the our allies in this fight and folks who are obviously well-meaning and are close friends of mine are also starting to call for harshness. And what I would just caution, what I do caution, is that we should be, we should be turning our outrage into different avenues. Instead of calling for greater harshness, knowing that the, pe- only, that the people who are going to be most affected are the people who are the mar- most marginalized and not the wealthy, not the, the, not the white privileged few who get this le- these lenient sentences. We should be calling for more mercy and leniency for all. So when Manafort, for example, was uh, sentenced to you know, close to seven years, I pointed out that I had a client of mine who was facing the same amount of time for stealing a bunch of quarters from a laundry, uh, from a residential laundry room. Mm-hmm. And the point was not that Manafort should be sentenced to more. I just wish my clients received the same kind of individualized justice. When Harvey Weinstein had a million dollars bail set with a prearranged bail package, was able to get out before he really went even in and was able to be out pre-trial, presumed innocent, able to work collaboratively with his attorneys for maximum impact. I didn't want, I wasn't mad at his treatment. That's how bail is supposed to work. It's supposed to serve as an incentive, not a punishment. So my call there is for my clients to receive the same treatment, for the bail statute to work for them too. And I think with the Amber Geiger case, I think we should all want and wish for that same kind of leniency and mercy. And frankly, 10 years is a long time. I wouldn't, it's yes, hard to I'm even so glad you beat. said that. <laughs> And I, it's so it's hard to even call that lenient. You know, you can't, you really cannot overstate. Look, yes. I've never been to jail, Our but you can't, overstate, you can't overstate the impact of a day in jail, let alone two <laughs> days, let alone a week, a year, let alone ten years. We are forgetting um, that ten years in prison is a harsh punishment because we live under kind of this criminal justice system that actually sentences people to 190 years in prison. Why? Like, you know, like, we're forgetting. We're forgetting, but we also, it's not just that it's harsh. Mm -hmm. It's not just that 10 years is a long period of time. It also just doesn't work 
in any conceivable rationale. Uh-huh. It doesn't make the person who's incarcerated better. It actually, all the data is suggesting, far from deterrence, it actually makes people more likely to commit crimes when they're released. Now, the populations of roughly Seattle or Boston are released from prison every single year. And uh, we're releasing them with less, we're releasing with no tools to be able to reintegrate into society. But what we're also doing is subjecting them to the horrors of, of punishment in American jails, which are criminogenic. What do I mean by criminogenic? Well, Danielle Surrett in her amazing book, Until We Reckon, I highly recommend it. And she's been really at the forefront of restorative justice, has talked about how the same characteristics of prison, which are isolation, shame, lack of uh, economic opportunity, and violence itself are the primary drivers of violence. So we're throwing a solution at violence that actually is the driver of violence. And the last thing I'll say about prison is, it's not just about individual fairness. It's not just about public safety. There, we also know that prison is very, very bad at healing the trauma of survivors of crime. Mm-hmm. And I think actually the Amber Geiger case is a really good example of that where you had, and he was, I think, pilloried really wrongly, but you had the brother of of the victim, of Amber Geiger's victim, saying that, she, that he wished she didn't have to go to jail. And the kind of the concept of restorative justice is what's going to put all the parties in the best position to both feel healed and feel accountable. And I don't think prison does that. And I think the the data and all the studies should suggest the same. And I think we're getting to a point where people are starting to understand that. Scott Heckinger, I have so many more things that I want to talk to you about. So we're going to have to have you back. I know we're going to have to have you back. Thank you so much for joining us here this evening. Really nice to see you. All right, that's it for the conversation. Post game is up next. If you're not a member, what are you doing? You know, like you should be. Post game is up next. It's going to be a good one. I'm Brooke Thomas. Thank you for joining us. Stay with us.